1: Hello and welcome to Snacky Tunes. I am one half your host, Darren Bresnitz. Jing Gao, founder and CEO of Fly by Jing, swings by the show to celebrate the launch of their new chili crisp vinaigrette. She shares the story of the search for her culinary roots, the launch of Fly by Jing, and how she keeps pushing and innovating with the company in new delicious directions. Then we dig deep, and I'm talking way deep, 2011 deep, into the archives for a legendary performance from we are augustines they had swung by the studio to celebrate cmj and laid down one of our earliest performances it's one for the books we hope you enjoy it so please sit back relax snacky tunes here on heritage radio network
3: Up into the air and I will notice you in this crowded room and whisper in your ears lift your tired head down darling lift it up into the air and I will float to you in this crowded room let's get us out of here
1: Jing, welcome to Snacky Tunes. Thank you so much for taking the time to chat with us. We really appreciate it.
4: It It's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Of course.
1: um, You know, we've had a lot of conversations and people in the food world and restaurant tours since the pandemic, and a lot of the focus has been on restaurants and how they've been affected. But the other side of the conversation is how much people have been cooking at home and, and recreating restaurant meals at home. You know, I'm sure that you've seen a lot of that with the work that you've done and the products and the business that you, that you oversee. What has been your experience? What have you seen on the other side of, of at-home cooking and how you've related to that in the last few years?
4: Um, yeah, so definitely once lockdown happened, uh, a lot of direct-to-consumer food and beverage brands like ourselves have, um actually, you know, seen quite a lot of growth in that in that period when people were stuck at home, uh, and just more open and willing to experiment with new things. And so um our product in particular, because you know, we we're known for Sichuan Chili Crisp, which adds flavor to um a lot of different things. And you know, people would write us during COVID and tell us how it saved their quarantine cooking and how you know, they were able to easily recreate like restaurant flavors at home, which um, <clears throat> I think, you know, having like, you know, cooking fatigue really set in for a lot of people. And so being able to like switch it up um, was really helpful for them. So yeah, we had a lot of very, um, very happy consumers that we found during that time who have continued to support us. So um, yeah, so I think um, it's been definitely challenging in other ways, though, you know, with supply chain and um, being able to get products to our customers on time. And, you know, I think uh, when the, at the height of COVID, when it first started, which also coincided with like the biggest period of growth for us, um, we, you know, it was great that we were growing so much, but it was coupled with all the challenges that came with um, with trying to fulfill those orders, and uh, we definitely had a lot of people on wait lists who waited a very long time to get their product, um, and so we're very lucky that people stuck by us, and I think people were very understanding um, of of those challenges. And but you know now we're on the other side of it, and so and what's been great is that we've really focused over the past couple of years on you know really strengthening our supply chains so um yeah so you know now on the other side of it we're we're feeling a lot more confident with our production capacity we're um you know we've got backups of you know factories that we work with um and uh yeah and and you know freight and everything has seemed to settle down so um yeah
1: yeah um no, there's so much that was learned and so many business points that I, I want to get to in a little bit, but I want to go back to sort of the beginning because you grew up in, in quite a legendary food city. Um, Where did you grow up? What was the scene like? How big a part of food was uh, in your childhood?
4: I grew up in Chengdu, which is known as the food capital of China. It's the capital city of Sichuan province. It's actually a UNESCO World. Uh, city of food which is it's only one of uh, a handful of cities around the world that has that designation and uh you know china is um a place that is just so vast um it's more of a continent than a country and there's just so much diversity in regional cuisines within china um and Sichuan is one of the main ones and it is you know, incredible, um in, known for its incredible flavor profiles. Um chefs are able to take like limited ingredients and combine it in, you know, dozens of different ways, hundreds of different ways, and um to just create incredible just uh, diversity of flavor profiles. And so um in Citron I think everyone is born like kind of uh born a food lover like that's just a prerequisite to being <laughs> a Sichuanese sure. and then you know so that's just baseline and, and you know everybody has their favorite uh, restaurants favorite uh, hole in the wall restaurants and these hole in the walls are known in Sichuan as, or in Chengdu as fly restaurants and they are also the namesake for our brand um, but these are really incredible lively eateries that are um, usually hidden and, you know, hard to find. There's no, uh, marketing it's down alleys and, um, but it's so delicious that, you know, it's said to draw people like flies. And so that's the, um, that's like kind of a hallmark, uh, you know, feature of Chengdu's food scene and what I really wanted to bring to life and kind of, um, evoke the energy of when I started Fly By Jing
1: did you know how much you're into food or did you just think of it as something that everyone was into and you didn't realize it until you started seeing more of the world and living in other places that not everyone has the same culinary relationship with where they grew up?
4: Um, So I was born there, but I grew up moving around quite a lot outside of China. So I was kind of, I grew up like kind of removed from that culture. And we would, you know, visit every few years to visit family. And I remember eating delicious, you know, food, but, um, and then, you know, going back to where we were living at the time, which was like across Europe, sometimes in Germany, England, Austria, France, Italy, and then eventually Canada. Um, So I, I think because I was removed from that, I didn't really identify with That food, I I just, you know, on the rare visits home, I would enjoy it and it was part of my memories. But um, I, yeah, it wasn't until much later when I was in my 20s and moved to China for work that I started to really kind of reconnect with um, those flavors and with myself as a result.
1: What drew you to that reconnection? Because if you travel a lot all over the world and you're in this, more you know you're in europe and there's obviously an emphasis on sort of that type of cuisine what was that spark when you came back home that made you realize that this was more than just eating that this was something that was going to draw you into a new chapter in your life
4: i think that was a gradual process it was definitely not like an instant realization when I first went to China in, uh, as an adult, uh, it was through an exchange semester with my university. And so I uh, studied in Beijing and I was, I remember being very just, um, enamored and astounded by how incredibly uh, dynamic the city was. Um, this was in 2008, 2009. And I just, you know, fell in love with the, energy it was such a fast paced like city things were so modern so growing so quickly you had the modernity and then you also had the tradition and the history of this like thousands of years of of history in in the city and so that contrast was really um, interesting to me and and also like what was possible within that contrast and so I felt like anything was possible anything goes and so I started actually um, getting involved with a company that did food tours in the city and i was really fascinated by what i was tasting what i was learning because you know there was so much depth to all the different regional cuisines and each of the provinces would have like a representative government office in in beijing and that's where you would often find the most authentic versions of the cuisine from the regions because the local government, the the government officials would want, you know, would miss flavors of back home. So they, they would bring out their, their chefs. And so, so through that process, I just learned so much about all these different cuisines and um, my palate was really expanded um, by tasting all these flavors I'd never had before and these ingredients I'd never had before. And so it started off as just like something that was just like, my curiosity. And the more I looked into it, the more I realized how um, much of myself I was kind of uncovering. And, you know, I was really seeking identity, I think, um, after having grown up the way I did um, all over the world. It was, um, you know, it it felt like peeling back layers um, of to myself. Uh, And and so then the more I did that, the more I realized just how, you know, fascinating all of this was. And I started sharing it on a food blog and, and I realized just how little, you know, people outside of China really understood or appreciated um, the complexity of Chinese food. And I um, felt like others would want to know. And so it became a mission about like shining light on the culture and, you know, kind of giving it a pedestal and, and. Um, the respect that I felt like it deserved
1: for those who are not as familiar with Chinese culture and Chinese culinary culture. What do people fail to grasp? How integrated is food into Chinese personality and, and culture as a whole?
4: Yeah. So, um, I think what most people don't realize is just how, um, how deep the culture goes you know it's a 5,000 year culinary heritage Um, it's evolved tremendously in that 5,000 years and it continues to evolve so no one can really say they have a full handle or grasp on Chinese food or even know what Chinese food is because it's not knowable it is literally so vast Um, you know someone who studies Sichuan cuisine all their lives could never even grasp the uh, you know the fullness of Sichuan cuisine uh, let alone all of China and on top of that it keeps changing still and just constantly there's the evolution which makes sense because you know living breathing cultures they change and they evolve and you know otherwise it's you know it it ceases to exist so um, I think that was just just like instilling that humility in, in you, in, in that, like, there's no, no way that you'll ever understand this or can claim to be an expert, you know? Um, And I think that's kind of the, the key to approaching not just Chinese food, any, any culture's cuisine.
1: Mm, Yes. Um, All right. We're going to take a quick musical break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk about the start of fly by Jing and how you Built the business from the ground up. We have a song from the archives here on Snacky Tunes on Heritage Radio Network. And welcome back to Snacky Tunes. We are with Jing Gao of Fly by Jing. And before the break, we're talking about the evolution and the constant evolution of Chinese cuisine. And I think it's one thing to love something from your childhood, love a specific flavor from where you grew up or where you feel that you have culinary ties to it's quite another thing to turn that into a product or something that you sell to people. Um, How did you start thinking about bottling or putting together the essence of this flavor as a business?
4: Yeah. So I, um, so I originally, uh moved to china with a tech job and i was there doing you know my work during the day and kind of like in my spare time working on my food blogging and food media projects and um then eventually i decided i wanted to do something in food full-time and ended up quitting my job and starting a restaurant in shanghai um and that was kind of my first endeavor like fully into the food world and um I realized through that process, like learned a ton and I realized I actually didn't want to operate restaurants. I think, you know, that's like a extremely um, difficult business, just like all businesses, but you know, restaurants are, have, are quite specific and it's um, tedious and you know, all the things. And for me, what I loved about the process, and we, we had a very successful restaurant. Um, but what I wanted to, what I loved about it was the, storytelling the brand creation the kind of reaching people with these flavors that i was developing and i wanted to figure out how can i do some do that um even even make it more accessible but also do something that felt more personal to me and i was trying to figure out what that was because you know we were our restaurant was a modern chinese fast casual and it was you know kind of recreating a lot of um, flavors from across regional flavors from across China. But um, I wanted to figure out like, what is my you know unique contribution to Chinese food? And so I ended up moving to my hometown for a summer and going back to Chengdu and just studying with uh, chefs and going into the countryside and on sourcing trips and just really, digging into Sichuan food in particular, because that's, you know, what kind of went back to where it started for me. And uh, to again, it was kind of like a journey and identity and um, finding what resonated with me as somebody who, you know, was born there, but also has lived all over the world and wanted to create something that was, you know, unique to who I was. And so, um, that led me to fly by Jane and that started out as an underground supper club. <clears throat> and so that um, was kind of a pop-up dining concept that I was just, you know, taking the techniques I learned, the really incredible ingredients that I was able to find from across Sichuan and figure out like what, um, you know, how do I put my own spin on it? And so started just cooking and doing pop-ups with other chefs and collaborating and doing pop-ups all, all over the world. And in that process, really just saw how um, much of a gap there was, you know, outside of China for high-quality Chinese flavors. I realized that all of the ingredients that I was cooking with, which were so integral to the flavors they were not available outside of China. And that was for many reasons. There was like no awareness of these ingredients. There was no, so of course there was like no appreciation. And, um, but on top of that, there was also added prejudice against, you know, Chinese ingredients and people thought that it was all low quality, that it's not worth paying for. So of course it's like a chicken and egg thing. Then, then no one's going to, ever export anything of quality if they're told that people are not willing to pay for it right so all of those things kind of made me realize that there was um, a, a big gap that you know i think there's an opportunity to fill so i um knew that these flavors were universal because i was cooking for people all over the world and everyone you know you could just see their eyes light up when they when their palates were you know awakened by these new flavors and Um, So there was a lot of love for these flavors. They just had no, they'd never heard of them. They'd never um, heard of Sichuan cuisine, you know, had no idea how to access it. So um, that was when, you know, I started thinking about how Sichuan food, because it is driven by these flavor profiles, which often take the form of sauces. And I was making these sauces already for my dinners, like as components of my dinners. And I was like, okay, I could just bottle this and you know, and that's kind of how um, we I started selling chili crisp in Shanghai to like local you know stores and to friends and family.
1: You know you've seen it in America, especially in the last few years with um, first or second generation uh, children of immigrants who've come in and they've looked back into their own heritage and opened restaurants and and put their own either modern twist on it or just you know, given, an evolution to the cuisine, when you were doing that, um, in China, one, is that same trend happening over there? And two, were people open to a new interpretation of a classic condiment?
4: Um, yeah, I think, uh, you know, there was definitely, um, a curiosity, right. And that was because like I mentioned, you know, on the ground in China, there is so much of, of that going on like there's constant evolution young chefs were, you know there was like a new generation of fly restaurant that was you know cropping up where instead of like old school mom and pop run restaurant it was run by you know a new generation of 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 like young people who um had a love for self-expression through cooking um i think china you know it's similarly to here like i think you know as china's like middle class really grew and just as people were living a bit more comfortably like i think my generation of of people um were finding themselves as the first generation in in their uh families who have like the choice to do whatever they wanted, right? And it wasn't so much like, like my parents' generation. They were still like very much, you know, expected to go into specific government government issued jobs and and things like that. And then this is the first generation where there is so much more. Um, well, they they have a baseline of comfort and and stability, and so there's a there's um an appetite for more risk taking and creative pursuits and so i saw that within the food world as well like there were just like really interesting you know uh restaurants that were very experimental and just doing cool things and um and yeah there was like definitely an, a value placed to placed on uh high quality ingredients provenance of you know ingredients um kind of you know I think like oh the over industrialization of food has also been something that's happened in China, just, just like it has in the West. Right. And uh, so there was like this trend of kind of going back to the roots um, as well, but like making it modern. And um, so kind of a high quality chili sauce that, you know, costs five times as much as like, you know, what you're used to. it, It was something that definitely had a huge market in China. I was selling a lot of chili sauce in Shanghai.
1: I mean, that's pretty amazing to see that opportunity and to run with it. How did you sort of gear up for that? I think it's one thing to make and bottle and sell to local stores, it's quite another thing to go to a full CPG brand possible co-packers distribution, things like that. Can you take us through a little bit of that process and how much did you know and how much did you have to figure out?
4: So I knew nothing. (laughs) I knew absolutely nothing. Uh, I was, yeah, I was making it all in my kitchen in Shanghai and just hand bottling. um, And I would get, you know, my, um, just like, you know, my helpers to kind of help me just bottle and stuff. And, and that was, um, that was the extent of it. But when I thought about uh, expanding to the U.S., and that was in 2018 when I went to Expo West and saw like just how uh, few, you know, pretty much how there was nothing on the market that represented high quality Chinese flavors. I was that's when I started to seriously look into scaling production because I knew obviously there's like um, you know, there's, there's rules around like you have to uh, work with certain manufacturers that are like um, FDA certified and and all this stuff. So I, I knew that was as much as I knew. And so I just started looking into factories and had no idea, had no idea where to begin. So I went to grocery stores and just picked up, bottles of sauce that i saw and looked up the factories that were kind of listed on the labels and just called one by one and just got you know got people recommending others and just eventually found my way to you know the the co-packers that we're working with now um and there was a lot of rejection a lot of like no's people had no um interest in working with a nobody, you know, that, you know, they they were pretty content with their business that they got from, you know, just the domestic Chinese market. There's no interest in um expanding internationally, especially when they knew that, you know, uh Westerners, you know, didn't really want to pay for Chinese food. So like there's just no incentive for them, right? <clears throat> so um, it took a lot of time and convincing, and, you know, um, until I found, you know, a co-packer that was even willing to work with us. And then from there, it was more challenges of just trying to get them to do things my way, you know, like <laughs> using, you know, my kind of more t- complicated techniques and my specific sourcing and just, no, none of them wanted to, to do that because they didn't have to. Um, they were very content with where they were.
1: Because they knew that at some level, the consumer wouldn't know how good it could be if they cut corners.
4: Yeah. I mean, absolutely. I think, I think, you know, in that process, uh, it was very clear why things were pretty watered down that were mass, you know, available. But um, I think, you know, it was more just like they, they, they had a way of doing things and it's like they just don't want to deviate from that. Just um, it, it's not. Uh, yeah. I mean, if, the, if it's working for them, why change it kind of thing? Um, especially because they didn't know what my quantities were going to be. And it's not it's not like I was a known company. Um, so, yeah. So it was like definitely took a lot of convincing to get someone to take a chance.
1: So, you know, it's easy to be distorted about these types of condiments, especially this one, if you live in, let's say Los Angeles or N- New York or San Francisco, some places that have a pretty big tie to Chinese population or Chinese food in general, when did you start to notice a national tipping point in America when people recognized you know, what this product was and that people were interested in it and that people were willing to pay for it?
4: Yeah, so um, I think, you know, Our initially, I launched a Kickstarter. And just to kind of see the appetite, and people really were ready for something like this, you know, and I think um, I that was what I suspected. But the Kickstarter really um, verified that for me. So it was enough for me to like move to LA, like basically, you know, stop doing the supper club, move to LA and like set up the brand as a consumer packaged good company, like, and, and just start working on that. Um, and, uh, I think, you know, we had that initial base of a few thousand, um, backers, which uh, we're very lucky to have had like just people who, you know, really, um, you know, foodies that wanted to, And who who were quite well-versed in Chinese cuisine and, you know, um, liked the the type of, like, umami and flavor profile. So we started with that base, that customer base, and it kind of steadily grew from there because those people tend to be the trendsetters in their communities and they, you know, spread the word about us. Um, We we were lucky to have gotten a lot of great press coverage very early on. And, um, you know, I think uh quite quickly we you know became um the kind of product that a lot of food people were talking about and i think after covid um in 2020 was when we actually really grew into like the mainstream consciousness for the first time so um people started you know cooking more at home like we talked about um, earlier and We also had um, a pretty major press coverage during COVID, including one New York Times article that um, really, I think, just blew us up. Yeah.
1: Oh yeah. Um, Sam Sifton was it? Yeah. Shout out! Shout out the great lady. Shout out, Sam.
4: (laughs) Um, Yeah. So Sam Sifton was so uh, incredible to us, and you know he um, was curious about how a chinese food brand was doing during the height of covid with you know everything that was going on not just in terms of supply chain and stuff but also you know anti-chinese sentiment and like it's a food product from china so he was curious and just you know interviewed me and i had no idea what it was going to be for but ended up being an article um in the sunday times that said that that was titled Your Quarantine Cooking Needs Chili Coast," And it was an article just about fly-by-jing. So it was really incredible. Um, and you know, overnight we sold out of six months of inventory. We uh, ended up that year 10 um, x the business and you know, I was able to hire my first employees and, and yeah, and so kind of set us up on, on a different trajectory.
1: You know, it'd be so easy just to focus on the Chili Crisp and do one product and just say, this is what we're about. But you've expanded to so many products and special collabs, even merch feels like, you know, streetwear drops, things like that. And building out content on your Instagram page, why was that an important part of the business and not just this one product?
4: Yeah. So I think, you know, I think from the beginning, it was never about the product. I think it was always about what we what the kind of change that I wanted to see in the food world, you know, I didn't see any representation of um, real, you know, Asian voices and and cultures in the food world. And so I wanted to change that. And we were really like one of the earliest asian food brands and that's all o- that's only four years ago you know and now um we see this proliferation i mean it's still like uh the very kind of beginning stages but we're starting to see so many exciting you know businesses run by founders who you know who are you know identity driven and, and mission driven and we're we're very um proud to have to be a big driving force in creating more space for those diverse voices um so i think like from the beginning it's been a very personal um you know quest of mine to be a you know culturally relevant like driving force and so that's kind of how we approach the brand and the brand is also really just about like inviting people into the fold um we're not a brand that's just like we sell citron food and you you must cook citron food if you eat this food it is you know there's one way to be there's no and so since the very beginning we've talked about our products you know being you know good on everything like try it on ice cream try it on you know, your eggs in the morning, your sweet green salad, you don't even mm. need to know how to cook. And so with <laughs> that Just have it in the those, just
1: have it in <clears throat> the backpack. Put it on everything. Yeah,
4: exactly. Put it on anything. Like, you know, and with those prompts, I think like we've given permission to our customers to really experiment and make it their own. And so it's really, you know, people tell us they put it into their baked goods. People, you know, eat their fruit with it and they you know, um, it, it's like really incredible to see people just like take it and make it their own. And, and that's, you know, that's what we're all about. Um,
1: I love yeah. that permission to say, this is just another condiment in some ways. Not saying it doesn't have a story and has mm-hmm. its place and culture, but it's, you know, you see ketchup and mayonnaise and mustard. Yeah. No, there are no rules where people use it. Sometimes I look at that and I go, not where I would put it with this idea yeah. that you can take this, you know, maybe you never even heard about this condiment or this type of cuisine from years ago. And now you're like, Oh, it's just a staple. It's a pantry staple in the best way
4: possible. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And, and just to get back to your original question about like, you know, it's a single product business versus all the other things that we do. I think it's really just like we do what, like, I think the brand is a reflection of, of me and certainly in a, in a lot of ways, but I think there's a philosophy and it's like, there's a point of view that we represent and we, we believe that that can show up in so many different ways, whether it's, you know, a piece of merch, whether it's like a collaboration with another like-minded brand, um, whether it's, you know, uh, yeah just just a product that's like <clears throat> not even food or, or just anything yeah so i think uh, you know like earlier this year we had a partnership with disney for you know and pixar for their film turning red um and so and that was like a story that uh we're really excited to be aligned with because it's literally when i first heard about the storyline i felt like it was a story of my life you know It was like this Toronto Chinese girl that turned into a giant red panda and pandas are from Sichuan. And, um, and it just like, you know, more stories like that, that um, hadn't existed before that, um, you know, really aligns with what we're about. So we partnered with them on that and, you know, we are partnering with Shake Shack as well. Um, You know, we just did a big, Uh, launch with them in the UK which is hopefully uh, or it is soon coming to the US as well and um, yeah so it's really like there's no there's no rules I think definitely Chili Chris is our is our hero product is our bestseller but um, you know what excites us is to be able to do like kind of genre bending you know uh, projects so
1: I love that. Well, Jing, I can't thank you enough for making the time and for making a great condiment and product. If people want to see what you're up to, hear about the new products you're working on, or just get involved with the larger community, where can they go?
4: Um, so people can go to flybyjing.com um, and follow us on all the platforms at flybyjing. Jing uh, my personal is at Jane Theory. And um, yeah, we're always you know coming up with new products. We actually just launched a new product today, um, which is like a chili crisp vinaigrette. Um, I saw it for
1: salads. Yes, yeah, please. Yes, yeah,
4: please. Yeah, it's for all kinds of things, you know, salads, noodles, dip, your dumplings in it. It's just this really incredible mixture of our chili crisp, soy sauce, our 10-year-age black vinegar and some sweetness as well so um yeah just uh coming to a tuesday
1: lunch near me very soon exactly (laughs) thank you so much we have a song from the archives and then a live performance here on snacky tunes on heritage radio network
0: This week on Meet and 3 from HRN, we're dissecting the mojito, one ingredient at a time. Because it's fizzy water and it's different to other waters we've seen, it must cure something. I actually hadn't heard that Sir Francis Drake story before, but it was so typical it had me rolling my eyes over here.
5: There was no other substance around where you could get so much booze
1: per buck. Tune in to meetin 3 wherever you get your podcasts. So... Most bands, you know, get one shot and get to some, you know, fame and then kind of just go away. You guys are kind of on, you're on your second leg, in my opinion, as like yeah. another band or anything. So how are you approaching it differently this time?
6: If it, it has to be important to us for our time these days. Well, so if as it's, opposed to before where... We were just getting dragged along behind of the, the uh, indie school bus there, dragging us through hell and high water, breaking our bank accounts and for pretty much free beer. So that those bullshit days are over and we we want to live our life with <clears throat> intention and purpose and feel good about what we're doing. I mean people love you
1: guys. I and I know that other people like fans, but I know that you have a very, very loyal group of fans and supporters in the, you know, indie school based world, even though things go specifically KXP who's been Huge champions of, of you guys and many others and many and many others many so'
6: other. helped so many people
1: yeah, I mean it's just it's just um, amazing, you know like you know do you approach the shows differently, tours differently, or is that
6: kind of yeah, we're doing everything. everything's like we, we decided to do three people instead of five, so that makes like <laughs> being able to get to things like this in a car like so much faster um we kind of like got to sit we just got to chill out for a year and look at it completely different and um I think that sometimes when bands get rolling, <clears throat> there's no time to stop, right? Like, mm-hmm. you're either trying to hold down a job or you're touring, and there's no, there's no time to stop and reassess stuff. You're just going. So Eric and I quit drinking for, like, six months, <laughs> uh, stopped hanging out. Like, our phone, call, our phone certainly didn't, like, ring off the hook when paylet ended. You think you, I thought people would ask if, like, we'd be trying to get, like, see if we could play with them or guest on their records or nothing. Thanks, New York. Thanks, New I mean, that's kind of like,
1: I mean, I feel like that's anything in, like, the creative world. Like, if you're in it, you're in it. But once you're out, people yeah. are just kind of like, like, just keep blinders going. on. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's, I don't know how to say it, like. Well, also, it changes. I mean, it's, it's, you know, it's like those people are, like, early 20s who are your champions and they move on and next yeah. thing. And then it's, like, these new round of people. Yeah. Like, uh, I was at Treasure Island this weekend mm-hmm. and DFA 79 was on the, uh, the headliner's on the side stage. And... You know, there was nobody there, no there under either. their late twenties. Uh-huh. I mean, because they just—I mean—they just stopped, and then like—I mean—they haven't put out anything new. They even put out a new thing when they got back together. Yeah. And it was just like I was like I was like, and even the person I was with, who was two or three years younger than me, was like, "Yeah, I mean, I, I heard of them, but I wasn't in it." And so it's sort of like, yeah. if you're not in it, which you know, I mean, I think yeah. you guys and we were talking about before we went on like It was a very specific time in our lives. Yeah, like if you weren't in that time or that scene, it was just like,
6: yeah. Well,
7: it, well, I think that that's what, well what goes back to like when, when we started. The difference between then and now is uh, n- knowing all of that knowing that everyone disappears when, you, when you're when you not the, the name on right. the blog anymore or whatever and knowing that your, your entire existence in many ways is purely digital and it will just be wiped out the minute you're done um, why on earth would you want to participate in that kind of world because it's such a trite superficial world so we had to ask ourselves why we would want to do that and getting to that core place where you realize that be even you know we, when you started when we most people when they play music is because they love it, right. and when they're kids they they get they connect to it on some well some level and it can and it makes them like kind of feel life a little differently and then the industry kind of has this this game with you, and it makes you hate it and a lot of people become bitter become uh, self absorbed or whatever or just get totally lost and you know why on earth would you want to go back into that and reconnecting with why. We play music, and why why we're here was the foundation of what we're doing right now. So, so what, that's 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 really the so biggest it, difference. It, it,
6: the sad part about it is that it has not. It's not the music's fault. The music's like the pure thing, and everything right. else is kind of silly. So mm-hmm. what type of
1: like opportunities and like shows are you pursuing now that you might have, like, just been like, nah, we're not interested in that.
6: I back. don't just there's there were there's been offers to play ever since the band started, and we've just just not really feeling like going over the that going over that patch of land we've already done that and so right. we, we started touring in the uk and kind of worked our way back from the uk to here so it's worked out really nicely okay so can we hear another song True. Sure.
3: hey old man turned and scratched his <laughs> chin said Sono Only we would talk about We never blamed it on the soil The sun burned earth or the prices of the oil This border town is my home I got rattlesnake guts in a desert full of bones Now my sister, I've gone to find someone Sun is shining on my hood. The statue on the dashboard of Maria looks beautiful, and I'm heading down south. Got tequila in my veins and the devil in my mouth. Tell my sister I've gone to find someone, so I won't come back no more, no more. Lord, I see red. It's alright, I got jukebox tears and stones for us. Hey, it's alright, I got jukebox tips under turquoise skies. Hey! Some demons took it even. Now, my demons count rosaries. We never blamed it on the soil. The sun scorched earth, where the desert meets the sky. Tell my sister I've gone to find someone. So, won't come.
1: sounding great. Thank you. Uh, Uh, As you enter back into the studio, well, you know we have. uh, Damn, dog showed up, and I wanted to get them some pizza. And you got a a cookbook. So CMJ is upon us, as it happens every year. Uh, You're not saying it right. It's (laughs) CMJ. Wow.
2: Wow,
4: never heard that before. (laughs) And
1: uh, you've been listening to Snacky tunes. Mm -hmm. I am out. No, that's between you and Billy. I can't win today. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, but that's really. I mean, let's be honest. Like. Shows are sort of secondary at CMJ. It's not really... What's primary? Uh, getting your name on a flyer. Which, which, is uh, much e- honestly, which, is, which is pretty much everything that we are Augustine's just said that they are not pursuing. I know, but I'm, I'm just saying that like, you guys are doing it right because you guys have selected like, But like, so many of the shows are just like, it's a pain they the ass to load in. The majority of New York doesn't care. It's not like Austin when like, the entire city is like, ready for South By. Mm-hmm. Or it's like a festival when it's just like you're in a, in a location. Like, that's, CMJ is like, a very tough thing to play.
6: I think we realize that we are background music. After all these years, we kind of finally realized that no one really cares. I don't know. I mean, <laughs> t- I, might, I might be biased, but I think, full
1: disclosure, because I work for the Ace Hotel, we're parting with KXP. You guys are playing there on Wednesday. Yep. I think those opportunities awesome. Were, are awesome, but then again, it's because, you know, Fifty, hundred people might show up because mm-hmm. you know limited space, or because you guys are playing at eleven in the morning. Sure. But then it lives on in the ether and is recorded and things sure. like that. But playing the eight pm slot on Thursday at pianos, mm-hmm. maybe maybe not it,
6: as. The, to, not to come full circle, like this is the this is the topic, right? Like it's really nice, kind of having done it and looking at things, going, you know, I want things to have meaning. Like I right. want them to mean something.
1: But I mean, th- I, I would say this. Um, we had uh, JD Sampson who used to be in the Tigre or still is in the Tigre and was a man and talking about second second comings or things like that it's like you're starting over in the sense that like people might not know the name but you already have the relationships mm-hmm. which actually and you know the ones that are good yes yeah, sir and as opposed to the ones that are bad which we talked about before yes, we did. uh and that is well ahead of the curve than like a starting point being like hi yeah. please try and listen to us which yeah. is like great because you guys get the opportunities to play kxp without having to put the five years of just having them to like hear your songs first. No, no, but you put in the five years i mean it's all about moving forward right
7: yeah yeah i mean we, we started with when when Palo broke up we realized we were surrounded by vultures and and it was up to just, us just to put it just to, to put it loosely
1: just yeah. to, in the nicest terms possible
7: but it was up to mm-hmm. us to to change that perspective and then at the same time that we were surrounded by vultures the minute we changed our perspective, we realized we were surrounded by people who supported us and loved us, and would do anything they could to to help us.
1: And They're we out just there. simply
7: went towards them. I mean, you know, and, Billy, and all of a sudden we have
1: yeah. I mean, like a you whole got different in,
7: perspective on music.
1: Exactly. And you got in two serious accidents, and there yeah. was still what I thought was great about that is like you got in an accident, and you guys had to pause. Mm-hmm. Uh, you came back, and there were people there, and you got into another accident, mm-hmm. and there were people there, and that to me was like one of the most heartwarming things. Yeah.
6: That people were just like yeah, we'll just wait. I know, I thought it was really, I thought it was really uh, noteworthy that living in a city this big, it's really, I try to explain it to people when we're not here, like actually what it's like to actually live in New York. And there's like, basically like, you know, areas that have their own scene, their own, their own tempo, their own vibe. um, But the fact that like a a music community at large actually helped me, I mean, that wasn't, I think that, that that surgery was like 15 grand. Which, which one of the two surgeries? The hand surgery? The hand one, yeah. Yeah. So, like, that was actually, I felt like a very, it would have been a really awesome write-up, but, like, no one really gave a shit. I thought it was fantastic that the there is a music community, even though it doesn't always feel like one. Right. Um, and they actually really stepped up, so it was actually really something to be proud of.
1: You know how it is with, the you know, it's so much about the bad story, not the good story. Yeah. yeah. The accident was important, not the aftermath.
6: Yeah, yeah. I, think exactly. I mean, wasn't that the case though? Yeah, well that, I mean, it, it also to, to, to go back to Augustine's for a second like, it really took a village to raise the band in a way because we um, we started a listener-supported model to get our band off the ground. We didn't do band camp, we totally did our own thing and reached out and we designed our own website. We, Which is an awesome website, by the way. Thank
1: you. Yeah, it's thank really, it's really good.
6: But we just had to basically I don't know if anyone's even listening but um in the music world or for the food food folks are listening but i guess what i would say to people who are doing it or starting it just don't don't underestimate the power of like your friends and i know you've been hearing that for years but like even people that headline the bowery or or do radio or whatever like even those guys like need to ask for help from their friends and give back also if you get, get a chance to like help other bands out do it and I don't know if, what you got in mind that like New York's going to be some like kind of fancy cakewalk where everyone gets to hoe down and get drinks and chase girls and stuff like get rid of that model. It's lame. Like, it doesn't work. It's lame. I think that's a, a good note to uh, to take us out before. Hold on a second. Before we play
1: a song, because yeah. I know they every say that. Let's give people the uh, you know where's what's the website? How to follow? How to get in contact? How to book you for gigs?
6: Well, there's, there's where to buy the record, keep, which has
1: been out since
6: this summer. I keep hearing, oh. about, it. <laughs> <laughs> I keep hearing about this. Um, there's like this this website, something called About Face. Some face. <laughs> The so, Facebook. Book oh, book? that one. Yeah. Wait, what book? Uh, the People. book. It's really. Ca- yeah. It supposedly is really popular.
1: Hey, I, I heard. Uh, keep an eye on it, and if you got money, just wait. There might be something in there. <laughs> might be something. Uh, I hear they're making a movie about it too. Yeah, <laughs> documentary.
7: Now there we, have we, have the we go. High five.
1: I'll try this again. <laughs> hold, on, hold on, hold on, hold on. Website. We we are Augustines. It, like it's like it's spelled. You can't miss. It. Awesome, and uh, we got. We're gonna do. We're gonna. Have you play a song? They're going to play a song for Damn Dogs, and they're going to be in here, ten minutes, fifty minutes. Cool. Okay, great, awesome. Uh, the okay. name of the song before you guys, Uh-oh. and uh, thank you to Sean Fletcher, oh, who, nice can, I mean. can, thank th- you Sean, thank you Sean, yeah. nice who's got no. literally like the best shirt on <laughs> it, it, of it, it, all time, plaid pearl yeah.
6: buttons with bees. Is there something else we can play. <laughs> um, this is a new song.
3: you in this crowded room and whisper in your ears lift your tired head down darling lift it up into the air and I will float to you in this crowded room let's get us out of here